0: Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hello and welcome back to our podcast. I'm with uh, Stephen as always. Hi Stephen, how are you? Yes, I'm good, Paul. And you? Very good. Continuing our journey into our themes, we are inviting someone that comes from the other side of the pond and even further because she's near San Francisco. So who do we have today and what are we going to talk about today, Stephen?
1: We've got Leah Hickman from Silicon Valley Product Group. I think these guys are the leading thinkers on, on product management within the tech industry. So I'm really excited to have Leah here today and we're going to be talking about product management and product development within the context of obviously the B2B SaaS startup grow up and scale up journey.
0: Hi, Leah. Hello. How are you? Very good. It's very early in the morning for you. So thank you for actually making time for us. My pleasure. So, Stephen, do you want to maybe just give a little introduction, as we always do, to our listeners about why product is important
1: and then lead into questions to Liam? Yeah, sure. So, just to, to kind of set the scene, you know, at the heart of every great, high-performing, successful SaaS company is clearly the product that really kind of differentiates them in the, in the marketplace. And we see the scale of innovation and execution that the very best product businesses can bring to market and is as much of a focus for the very best companies as their as their sales capability, and within the challenges that we see, especially I think in Europe, really building world class product product management and organisations is a critical part of the of the scale up journey. And that's why you know we focus on this topic a lot, and why I'm so pleased to to talk to Leah. And you know Leah has been I think, leading product teams for 25 years, I think. Products used by millions of people around the world.
0: A little bit more than that, but
1: yes, quite some time. Is it really? And, you know, she and the Silicon Valley Group are recognized as thought leaders and practitioners in, in technology product management. So I'm you know, really excited to talk to, to Leah about this over the next 20 minutes, half an hour or so. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, so I wanted to start off. I, I was speaking to Marty a few weeks ago. We ran a an AMA asked me anything with him based upon his book, recommended reading for anybody in the tech industry. One of the things that he talked to is this, this massive gulf between the very best tech product companies in the world. And he talks about Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Google, and we all know who those are and the rest. And I'd really like to explore that. I wonder whether you could just give me your essence of what is it that separates the very best product companies at scale. And I'm thinking about the extraordinary companies like Apple, Amazon, and Google from everybody else.
0: I think from my perspective, the biggest difference I see in those companies is their mindset. I believe that great product companies truly value innovation and put their money behind it. We actually, in our practice, we see a lot of larger companies who tend to lose that spirit and mindset over time, and they start looking at their product portfolio purely from an ROI perspective. And don't get me wrong, that's important, but I think the great companies and the ones that you mentioned, they make room for that innovation and even disruption, and they value it, and it becomes a core part of their culture. And do you think it's
1: innate to these organizations, or or is this really something they spend a lot of time obsessing about creating those those kind of cultures.
0: I think they spend time and focus on it. I think that at the beginning, it's probably innate and it's a part of the core values of the founders. But as they grow over time and as more and more people come in from the outside, it's something that they really have to cultivate.
1: So let's take it back to the beginning. So I'm a startup. Let's say I'm in, I'm in Europe, but it doesn't really matter so much where I am in, in the world, but that's where our audience is predominantly. How does that kind of world-class culture and mindset show up in you know, a company with less than 5 million in revenue, maybe less than 40, 50 people?
0: I think the mindset starts with focus. It's usually something that's driven by the founders, especially if the founder is a product-centric founder, but really focusing on the right problem and validating that it is indeed a problem worth solving. I love how you frame things as startup grow up and scale up. Because at that startup phase, really making sure that we're focusing on that problem is incredibly important. And I think another thing that's important around that is being passionate about that problem. So we can identify the problem, we can validate that it's the right problem to solve. But I think at that very early stage, you need to have some sort of momentum, and usually it's passion that drives that momentum and focus.
1: Marty, in his book, talks a lot about the essence of this phase being about discovery. You know, it's actually a problem that's really worth solving. And this is all about customer focus, notwithstanding that the essence of innovation comes from the company, not from the customer. How do you see that kind of process playing out at the early stage
0: Yeah, I think discovery is a little, at the earlier stages, less about the actual solution and more about the problem. And so when we're working with companies, we really try to disconnect them from the actual solution until they've really identified that the core problem that they're trying to solve is a valid problem. And so from a discovery perspective, making sure that they're not already in love with the solution is something that's really important kind of taking them backwards and really spending time with customers not to validate usability, for example, but to really focus in on how the companies are working, what roadblocks they're coming up against, how can technology Basically, adjust to solve that particular problem, I think, is a, a part of discovery that a lot of folks lose sight of because they're so focused on validating their already existing ideas.
1: Yeah, we see that. You know, I spent three years trying to prove that my hypothesis was right. <laughs> rather than actually trying to prove that the problem is actually really worth solving at scale. Could we dig a little bit into some of the kind of characteristics of the people that play the critical role at the early stage? Marty he said something really resonated with me that certain VCs in the Valley will not invest in an early stage company unless they have proven early stage product managers already on board. Do you have a sense of what the kind of characteristics of those types of people at that kind of that early stage is
0: for a product manager it has to be someone who's really willing to work beyond their own boundaries in the startups that i've worked at and the people that i've hired in those companies it really has to be someone who's not afraid to roll up their sleeves and kind of get involved in all aspects of the business so not only are they you know do they need to get involved in actually writing specific user stories but they also have to understand Each and every aspect of the business. So they have to have a keen understanding of what the go to market strategy is. They have to have a keen understanding of what it takes to actually build on the platform that they're working with. And the reason why they have to be almost skilled in all of these different areas is because they are the fundamental person who's accountable for pushing the product forward. And so they need to have a certain level of empathy to make that actually happen. Very different than what the Skills are, I think, for later stage companies, but early on, there's a certain scrappiness and grit that has to be associated with those product managers in order for them to you know, continue to push things forward.
1: So let's assume we've we found product market fit and we're kicking through to a point where we've got plus five million in revenue. You talked about the characteristics those people change, but fundamentally, what changes? as the company grows through that, let's say, 5 to 25 million in revenue? I
0: think that the biggest challenge that I've seen companies face as they're going through that difficult growth (laughs) phase is that bringing people from the outside in and making sure there's this continued focus to actually validate all of the things that we put in place in the early stages and that it's able to actually I think you even called it out as we're actually able to build predictability around the model that we've created after we hit product market fit. So it's one thing to validate the value. It's another thing to have that level of predictability over time. And when you introduce people from the outside, it adds even more complexity because you have to layer on the communication on top of that, which I think is one of the areas that a lot of organizations really struggle with. How do you communicate the focus and the vision and the strategy as you bring more and more people on board? who might not have the same level of passion around that core problem.
1: Maybe, yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, can you dig into that a little bit more and explain what you mean by the, the level of communication you'd want to see?
0: Sure. As you know, communication is very different when you have only you know, 25 people in your company and then you start to grow you know, to 50 to 100, you know, especially when you bring in folks who have differing points of view. Communication is less about a tell to the organization. It's more about influence in the organization, bringing those people on board and influencing their perceptions and their past experiences to basically move things forward and align with the vision that the company has. I've seen organizations that the tools that they use, the the cadence of communication, the spirit of communication, all of that needs to be considered quite significantly in order for the rest of the organization to get on board so that we can continue to prove out that level in the growth phase.
1: One of um, our product leaders talks about this phase as being about building the product machine (laughs) or the product machinery that says, actually, we're able to take that problem. We've turned it into a product and now we can can replicate. That's right. We can build all the processes and the communication strategy around it. And then that goes through to the next phase. It says, okay, right now we're going to get really big really fast. What changes then? As companies scale, do you see... Any particular changes in kind of product management and organizational structure?
0: Yeah, I definitely see the skill set of the product manager changing. And this is where the product manager, you know, they have that sphere of influence. They understand all the different aspects of the business. Now at that phase of the company, this is where we start really having to change the skill set of the product manager. So beyond communication and beyond influencing, they really need to understand how to traverse to that scaling phase. And and the characteristics in terms of getting a product to scale and what's required are so different than that original 1.0. What I find is that Not to oversimplify it, but I I look at product managers as there's the chief innovator, they're incredibly creative, they're really good at 1.0 products, and then there's another type of product manager who's really, really good at optimizing and building incremental value on top of something that already exists. I don't see a lot of strong product managers who are exceptional at both. And so in that scale phase there might be an opportunity to bring on additional skills that are really exceptional at that incremental portion of product management. There are people who thrive in that particular area and it's typically at least from my experience it's typically not the same type of personality that's really great at that 1.0. Yeah. And
1: once you get past that incremental phase, you've also got a kind of portfolio phase as well. Yeah, exactly. I've now got multiple products in multiple regions with multiple different aspects to it and changes again.
0: Exactly. And that's a great problem to have.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. One of the things that I was really, um, again, interesting pulling out from the book was the, the real unequivocal focus on the simplicity of the product team structure, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the pod or scrum as, as you might call it. I wonder if you could just kind of talk to us a little bit about that and maybe we'll break that down again into whether those teams change as the companies grow does that structure stay the same?
0: I think it definitely changes as you grow into scale. In fact, a lot of the companies that we're working with right now are actually right in this phase where you know, at the beginning, they decided to organize around squads, which as you know, we definitely promote. And that's the notion of having a product manager work very closely with a lead designer as well as a lead developer, both in the discovery as well as the delivery phase. But as the organization starts to scale and you have more products in the portfolio, or you might have shared services, there's a level of dependency that takes place across all of these different products where the shared services team needs to prioritize what's being done and how do they go about that. And what we find is that more and more organizations add additional resources into that core team. Sometimes it's a delivery manager. It might be called a program manager in the organization. But folks who are looking to really help that team make priority calls across what needs to be done first. There's also especially in the B2B SaaS space, we're seeing more and more of product marketing having a seat at the table, not only in the delivery phase but also in the discovery phase, which can be hugely impactful because the go to market, you know, is something that needs to be considered, you know, right from the beginning from a product development perspective. And so as companies scale, we definitely see not only the makeup of the product manager changing, but also the makeup of the team changing over time.
1: I was talking to one of our founders this morning, actually, who's who's kind of struggling with this very critical phase. It's quite early, about 2 million in uh, ARR. His Mm -hmm. product team is all in, uh, actually in in Ireland, but 50% of his revenue is in the U.S., And we were talking about, you know, well I want to put product people into the US. And I think this is quite an interesting challenge for businesses as they scale, because ideally I want my product manager sitting next to my my designer and my engineering team in their squad, but that's not necessarily possible. How do you reconcile that problem of internationalization?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um You know, I think so much has changed over the last five years in terms of our ability to work collaboratively, you know, across all those different time zones. The last company that I worked at, we were actually all remote. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was, you know, how do we not only um, manage our day across all of these different time zones, I mean, we had people all the way from Australia to London. The lead designer was in London and someone else on the team was in Australia. It was quite a challenge. But what we did is we basically leveraged tools like Slack, you know, true collaboration tools to make sure that everyone was in the stand up at the same time making sure that decisions were made in real time, collaboratively, but the biggest challenge that we had and the thing that we missed was the relationship building that is so critical to product. So making sure that, you know, if there was no relationship, we actually took the time to have people travel to sit down to even if it was just working in a coffee shop together uh, to really build that rapport and relationship to help mitigate the gap that we had with everyone working remotely.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense and we see that happening. I mean it's obviously a bigger issue for European companies. Yeah. I mean, very few of the companies that we invest in can get the scale that a U.S. company could get just in the U.S. They have to internationalize. Kind of ties into a very big topic, which is around the cultural aspects of the highest performing product teams. Notwithstanding that the culture of every company needs to be distinct, do you see certain cultural behaviors within the highest performing product teams that are replicable?
0: Yeah, I think there's two things that I think are absolutely critical for a high performing team. One is collaboration. So making sure that that core team not only is being measured by the same objectives, but they truly believe that the way to get there faster is to truly collaborate with one another. So it's not a system where we're asynchronously communicating with each other. We're actually making decisions together and everyone's aligned. Um, And the reason why that's really effective is because it can shorten the decision-making cycle. And we can just move a lot faster. But the other aspect of this, which I think is very difficult for some organizations, is the transparency piece of it. So it's one thing to communicate and to collaborate, but it's another thing to do it transparently. So making sure that everyone has access to the same data and also making sure that everyone understands the why behind decisions. I think that is something that great product teams really get because there's just a sense of truly understanding the motivation behind what we're doing as opposed to just the mechanics of what we're doing. And the companies that really nail that, I think, have a much higher likelihood of success. Yeah,
1: they, they have to really trust each other as well to be transparent <laughs> they do and that that is a really really hard thing to achieve you know you've got to be able to demonstrate vulnerability and say do you know what i really don't know how to do this or i'm not sure that this is working properly or or i uh, you know i don't know how to fix this problem that can be quite hard in remote teams, Well, it can be hard in any team, but, but especially in remote teams.
0: Oh, I completely agree. And I think, I think that you know, when we hire great product managers, that's something that we need to look at. I typically guide my hiring managers from the perspective of you know, if the person that you're interviewing and bringing on board is more concerned with being right versus listening to other people's opinions, that might be a red flag in terms of whether or not you can create that transparent culture. And build that trust that you called out. One,
1: um, well, I mean, it's been really fascinating, Lee, and I think we can carry this on all, all day. But I'm just wondering if you, if you kind of take yourself back to your, you know, the beginning of your journey, and think about kind of you starting out as a product leader, what piece of advice? I suppose, do you wish you'd been given and would you therefore give to a product leader starting out in the tech industry?
0: Well, I could actually share a bit of advice that Marty gave me very early on in my career. He was was actually my boss at Netscape and he gave me very sage advice that I've kind of carried forward and passed on to a lot of the people that I've worked with. And he told me very early on, whatever you do, never fall in love with your idea. And the reason he gave me this advice is that he believed that people act irrationally when they fall in love with their ideas, meaning that they start protecting their ideas and they stop listening to all the signs that say it's time to move on. You also stop listening to people who don't necessarily like your idea, which becomes even more dangerous. And so he used to say the easiest way not to fall in love with your ideas is to make sure that you entertain a lot more ideas than you originally are thinking about. I'm not sure if that was relationship advice or if it was product advice, but either way, sage advice nonetheless.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah. That's what we were talking about in the beginning about slavishly trying to prove that my initial hypothesis is correct. Exactly. Leo, has been fascinating. Thank you ever so much. How can people learn more? Obviously, they, they can read Marty's book, uh, which I recommend all our product leaders to do, but, but how can they learn more about the Silicon Valley product group?
0: Oh, thank you. Um, the easiest way to learn more about us is to go to our website. It's svpg.com. The best thing to do is to sign up for the newsletter. So the partners actually write articles about on a monthly basis and we send them out to our base. This is you know the best way to get involved. But there's also two ways to engage with SVPG. One is through our public workshops, which Marty himself actually teaches, uh, usually in New York, San Francisco, and London on a quarterly basis. And then we also do private workshops, which you can learn more about on the website. Terrific.
1: Thank you. Fantastic. Actually, whilst you were answering that question, I just signed up for the newsletter. Here.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yeah, Leah, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.